So today we're looking at uh, a guy called Boaz in the Bible. We're finishing our series, series called Extraordinary, which we've been looking at the book of Ruth. And um, I've been noticing something that you probably would have heard about in the last year or so. Um, throughout 2016 into 2017, uh, there's been this thing, this phenomenon that swept through our media, swept through our news, uh, called fake news. Who's heard of fake news? Yeah, most people. Oh, that's pretty much everyone. So fake news has altered our perception of what truth is, of what people are. And uh, today, G2, I'd like to temporarily invite you uh, to pretend that everything you read is true. And we're going to pretend that some celebrities, one in particular today, are actually good people. So we're going to ignore the concept of fake news and believe the news just for a minute. So church, today, I invite you to accept the public image and portrayal of a man of status, of influence and of wealth who genuinely does have a good heart and there is nothing illicit about him or his business operation. I swear this, no fake news, he is a good man. He gives jobs to ex-offenders, he does lots of humanitarian work and charity work and he's a pretty good guy all round. So I'd like to invite you to imagine this good guy businessman, this reputable man, that he's lying in bed one day at home on his private island after a night of good food, good wine, and laughs with his friends. He's sleeping away after a day of fun with Barack and Michelle, merrily dreaming of space travel and profit and loss sheets. And then one of the staff at his house comes and lies down at the feet of his bed. So this woman, she works doing manual labour for him on the estate, and he's actually employed her. He's shown great pity on him. He's employed her. He's allowed her to come and work for him. And she's actually a Jordanian refugee. Don't ask me how she got to the Caribbean, but she got there. It's impressive. So she's left her country of Jordan, a country where one in 13 people are estimated to be refugees, and there's severe drought and famine there. On the way, her husband has died, her father-in-law and her brother-in-laws have died, and she's travelled all the way from Jordan with her elderly mother-in-law. Being the good guy and reputable man that he is, took pity on her and her story, and has employed her and allowed her to stay with him wakes up and is startled by the sight of this Jordanian refugee woman at his feet. He asks her who she is, what she wants, what she's doing there. And she tells him that she's one of his staff. And she says to him, oh, Richard, you don't know this, but due to an ancient cultural law, uh, you've got responsibility to restore the property and status of my family. To do this, you must marry me. <laughs> so we've got this lowly Jordanian refugee and a businessman and CEO and entrepreneur of pensionable age... And he's told that he has to provide an heir to her. So not only has he got to marry her, he's got to give her a kid. This is a 66-year-old man. He's been married three times. And now he's got four Jordanian refugee on her way there. He agrees to marry her. After some discussion and some preparation, marries this young refugee woman. And they have a child together. And the fact that this child is born has restored the family line of the Jordanian refugee and provided redemption for his mother and his grandmother. Their status in society is restored, and they all lived happily ever after. What an utterly ludicrous and totally ridiculous story that is. A man of good character and very good finance stepping in to rescue Jordanian refugee woman through marrying a woman half his age and having her baby. That's scandalous, isn't it? Can you imagine the scenes if that happened today? Can you imagine what Twitter would look like, what our headlines and our gossip columns would read if married a refugee from Jordan who was half his age. Well, church, this story of redemption between a businessman of wealth, of good status, of character, and a lowly refugee 
is a very close modern equivalent to our story today. The story of Boaz. Boaz is a farmer. He owns a large farm, many people employed by him. He's a man the Bible describes to us as being of worth and excellence. He's a man of good character, of wealth, and of societal importance and strength. He's a man who ends up marrying a Moabite, which is a modern-day Jordanian refugee, named Ruth, had a child with her, and restored her family line. Similarly to, I can't never say that word, similarly to Richard Branson, Boaz is a good man. In fact, he's one of the few biblical characters in the Old Testament uh, that we never get exposed to their character flaw, so we never actually hear anything bad about him in the, in the Bible, which is quite unusual. In the story of Boaz, this refugee woman, Ruth, comes and works for him. She picks some grain in the farm that he owns, and he encourages this woman to stay and work with him, work his fields. He offers her food and drink and protection from other farmers, potentially who may have been of disrepute, who may have taken a fancy to an unmarried and protected single woman. Boaz protects her, and he instructs his employees to intentionally leave good crops out for this woman and allow her to glean. That's pick up the leftover crops from the harvest. So he allows her to green the best crops, from the more preferential locations in his fields. He's merciful and kind to Ruth due to the stories he's heard of how she stuck with her mother-in-law, Naomi, despite the death and drought the pair have encountered. Naomi and Ruth have returned to this this town of Bethlehem to seek to make a living however they can, having lost their uh, husbands and brother-in-law, just like the Jordanian refugee of Richard Branson. And Naomi then informs Ruth that Boaz is one of the kinsmen redeemers for their family. And she would do well to stay close to Boaz. So Ruth actions this by going to Boaz late at night, lying down at his feet. And when he wakes up, startled to see her there, she tells him that he's one of the kinsmen redeemers for her family. And kinsman redeemer is an ancient Levitical term connotating a male relative who, according to the Hebrew law of the time, had a privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a close relative to redeem them in times of trouble, danger, or need. And their action that there was required of them was to rescue or redeem the property or person through financial means, so buying property or a person, um, or you could do this through something called a leverate, a leverate marriage. If we get the slide up, that'd be good. So a leverate marriage literally means a marriage with a brother-in-law. So in ancient times, if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother-in-law to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the deceased. So the widow would marry the brother-in-law, and the first son produced in that union was considered the legal descendant of her dead husband. So Boaz is a kinsman redeemer for Ruth, but he informs her that he's not the closest one. She comes to him late at night, he's startled to see her there, but somehow he has a mental capacity to say, no, 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 I'm not the closest kinsman redeemer. There's a guy closer than me. There's a man who's got the power to act here, the power to redeem you, who can restore your family line because you've not got any male heirs, and that was pretty important in those times, to restore the family line and restore the inheritance. But this man ends up refusing to exercise his right to be kinsman redeemer. He's really happy to buy back the land of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. So that would secure the financial status of Naomi and Ruth for their lifetimes. I mean, they don't have to be slaves. They don't have to go around picking grain in Boaz's field to get security. He's happy to do that. But he's unwilling to marry Ruth. Ruth, this woman of audacity and nobility, this woman of boldness who we heard about last week from Gemma. Because... To marry her would mean that any heir would be entitled to share his existing inheritance. 
And I can imagine him saying to Boaz, I just don't want the drama in my family. I don't want to have to split the inheritance. I don't want the complicated things with stepsons and all that stuff. He refuses to take up his right because he doesn't want to have to share his inheritance with the potential heirs. He's not willing to restore the family line. He'll buy the land, but he won't secure their future beyond their generation. But Boaz will. Boaz is willing to make a personal sacrifice to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He's willing to step in and he exercises his right. He redeems both the property of the family and their inheritance by agreeing to marry Ruth. He he agrees to have a child of her, which then restores her family line and their inheritance comes back to them. So Boaz and Ruth end up having a baby, a baby called Obed. And Naomi becomes a nanny to this baby. So joy is restored to all of them and their family inheritance restored, restored due to the boldness of Ruth and the sacrifice of Boaz. Redemption takes place and is fulfilled in the baby Obed. So Boaz's actions of redemption have taken Naomi and Ruth from a series of situations into a far better, far better state. And I'm going to show you a couple of them here. So, through Boaz's actions, Naomi and Ruth go from being in a place of grief and death, where their husbands have died, and Naomi sends her daughters and lords back home, doesn't want to be followed by the grief anymore. And then Boaz ends up having a baby. New life comes. They go from a place of anxiety, from grief and worry, where Naomi sends Ruth and her other sister-in-law, Orpah, away and come into a place of provision and rest in Boaz's home. So he's taking them from death to life, from anxiety and worry to provision and rest, and then from emptiness to fullness. Naomi says that she's left Bethlehem, this hometown, and she went away full, and she's come back empty. And then Boaz ends up giving six measures of barley to Ruth and says, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. He's intentionally filling her up, intentionally giving more than she deserves, more than she needs. Taking from emptiness, spiritually, materially, to fullness, materially and spiritually. Naomi and Ruth lost their family. They lost their, they lost their, Naomi lost her sons and her husband. Ruth lost, obviously, her husband, brother-in-law, father-in-law. And they restore the family again through the baby. And the woman all said to Naomi, you've got a son. She got to care for him. So we see all these positive actions that, that Boaz's redemption means for the family. But the fullness of redemption is found in the baby. The baby that's born, baby Obed. The fullness of redemption comes from him. And I wonder where that story is familiar to you. Uh, who's, who's that baby for us? Who's a familiar baby for us? A baby born who brings redemption. And redemption has two definitions that we can look at. One of which is about to regain or gain possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. So similar, similarly, I can't say the word, can I? Similarly to Boaz, who decides to, to, buy, to buy the lands from, for Ruth and Naomi and to enter into the marriage. So he's bought them back. And the second one is the action of saving or being saved from sin, error or evil. And this is where we see our second baby coming in. Our second redeemer, Jesus. And we see about Jesus in Matthew 1. The mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, says that she is to give birth to a baby, a son, and is to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Sins are things where when we've turned away from God, when we've turned back from him, that's what it means to sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus has come in that second salvation way for us, to save us in that sense, as well as to 
pay the price for us. So he was born as a baby, lived on this earth, and came to save us. And he made sacrifices for us. He sacrificed his life and his divine connection to God. He broke the curse of death that is upon us, that was upon the people of God, in order to redeem us, so that we may know life in him, and may be filled with his Holy Spirit, and know the promise of eternal life. And Boaz is a legal kinsman redeemer for Ruth and her family. And similarly for us, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, but he's not a legal redeemer, he's an active redeemer. Uh, Tim Keller says, the founders of every major religion said, I'll show you how to find God. But Jesus said, I am God who has come to find you. I am God who has come to find you. So in the case of Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer, they kind of had to work it out, they had to find out, oh, by the way, Ruth, this guy's a bit of a big deal, he's your kinsman redeemer, he can save us, you know, go and light light his feet, wake him up, get him to marry you, that'd be really good for us. He has to, they have to go and find him and earn him through their boldness. Whereas if Jesus, he comes to find us and offers us free gift of redemption. And a similarity between the two, in Boaz brings redemption for the family. And through the birth of his baby Obed, a family is created who are redeemed. And Jesus, Jesus does the exact same thing to us. He redeems us from a, being in a place of kind of slavery and, and sin and uncertainty uh, into being children of God, into being heirs of God just like Obed. And we're redeemed to this family and get to occupy our true inheritance as children and co-heirs. And I want you to kind of pause that thought of family because we're going to come back to that a little bit later on and understand a little bit more about what redemption as a family means for us as G2. And coming back to our story of Boaz and Ruth, for Ruth and Naomi, they never blamed themselves or had guilt about their situation. They were angry, they were bitter, they were upset. But they saw the better life and the fuller promise of their redemption in Boaz. They were quite clever. They were quite opportunistic in thinking, oh, actually, go after him. Go get him. Go find him. It wasn't a guilt-driven need for them to have redemption. They sought to find it for themselves. They went for it for ourselves, for themselves. And that's quite different to us. We don't go around thinking that we can find our own redemption. We need to know that we get it through Jesus' gift to us. And you may not feel like you need redemption. You may think you're doing okay. You may think you're doing all right without it. Um, But Jesus says that he's come to redeem us into something better and higher than what we had before. There's a passage in the book of Titus in the Bible which summarizes our transition from from one state into another state. And it says this. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So Jesus comes to redeem us from a path of kind of destruction and kind of ungodliness and in something better and higher, into being a people that are his own in relationship with him who are eager to do what is good. Not because of what we have to do, not because of what we've done, our guilt, but in response to our God-given and grace-filled redemption, we have life. God chooses to take us from wickedness into godliness. And we're going to have a time of communion a bit later on. We're going to share a family meal in recognition of living out this redemption together. Seeing how Naomi, Ruth, Boaz and Obed, the fullness of the family, is what brings redemption. And it's the same for us today as church. We're a family of God. We're a family of redeemed people. And communion acts as a reminder of our identity 
in God, a reminder of who we are today because of what Christ has done for us. But first, we've got to consider something more to redemption. We've heard a story of redemption. We've heard about Boaz and Ruth and the, the ridiculous story that is. We've explored what redemption is, who it comes from, and why it happens. So we've got the what, the who, and the why. All that's left is the where and the how. So where can we live our redemption out? How do we do this? And what is our own redemption story going to be? How do we partner with God and have the support of our family, the church, in owning our redemption? What is it in us that God's redeemed that we're going to show to others? And for myself, this has looked looked like a long journey of redemption. So a bit of background about myself. Uh, I'm from a town called Reading, down near London. You might have heard it in the accent a little bit. Um, That might be why I have five names. Maybe it's a Berkshire thing. You never know. (laughs) It isn't. But (laughs) Reading's quite near London. So about half an hour train from London, which is interesting. So a lot of people that, at my age from Reading, go away to university and all the different cities and then come back to Reading and commute to London and get nice jobs. So I went to, I went to an all-boys grammar school when I went to school, which also probably explains five names. But <laughs> grammar schools are quite competitive and we're always told to do this, be better, do this, get more, get a really good university, get into a Russell Group University like York, get a good grade, get into a good job. And there's kind of this sort of rat race that develops where you're like, everything that you're told to do is to get success and it's to, to get something for yourself and to work hard so you can earn something for yourself. And that's something, that kind of mentality is something that is perpetuated throughout my friendship group back home. Uh, my main group of mates back home in Reading is a bunch of 10 lads. Uh, I'm the only Christian there. And I've noticed this interesting shift in them in the last three years where we've all gone through university. We've all had different kind of trials and tribulations that come with that. And um, they've started calling me a moral compass as I left university. And I, I kind of thought for a while, is that because I'm some weird, they think I'm some weird Christian? Do they think I like walk around and sing hymns and chant in Latin and wear a halo or something like that? But I've realized that for them, being a moral compass is because I'm not about the life they're about, because I'm pursuing something better, something higher than what they want. They frequently tell stories about how they go to strip clubs on weekends, about they have started doing cocaine on nights out. They're earning jobs at £45,000 straight out of uni. They've got brand new cars. They've got everything the world wants them to have. They've got the ungodly and wicked way that Titus talks about. But they see something in me, and this isn't an arrogant claim that I'm really great. They they see something of Jesus in me through the way I choose to act. They're not impressed by what I do. They're not impressed by my jobs. They think, great, you work for church. That's really good. But what really stands out to them is how I choose to interact with the world. It's how I act on a night out, how I talk about women, how I do that kind of thing. For them, taking that stand morally has is a pathway to them for redemption. And I've been praying for them for 12 years, and I won't stop praying for them, because they're the kind of people that are this far away from Jesus and going further and further away, but I firmly believe that they have a redemption story of their own. And if me showing up and being a moral compass and getting a bit of Christian banter, but actually pointing them to Jesus is what's part of their redemption story, then I will do that. I will play that role. That's what will have to be. And that is painful, and that is difficult. And in being redeemed, we don't just think, oh, we're great, we're redeemed, we're happy, we go to church, we sit with that. We have to go out and do something. We have to go out and live those lives, be a people that are God's very own, eager to do what is good for him. And your redemption story might not be in your, in your mates that are in strip clubs doing cocaine. Your redemption story might be just in the staff room at work, in the break room at work. You might have an opportunity to challenge a culture of gossip 
and to honour people, to speak better of people. Uh, our actions are reflective of our character and people are drawn to our character more than what we do. Maybe in your business or in a position of leadership, how are you setting a culture that's healthy for people? How are you setting a culture that speaks well of people, that pursues people's best interests? If you're a student on a night out, do you really need to drink that much? Do you really need to try to, so hard to fit in that people will like you? Or do you have an opportunity to live redeemed? Do you have, that, do you have a high value on yourself in how you live your life? Do you say, I've actually been bought at a price, I've been redeemed, therefore it's my responsibility to live that way, to do what is good, to show redemption to people, or are you compromising? Are you sacrificing something of yourself? Is it your attitude to work and rest? Do you know, again, that you've got a value in your life, that you don't need to subscribe to a rat race, you don't need to subscribe to a narrative of work hard, work hard, work hard, get 2.6 kids and a Voxel Astra? Fine. Great, happy, but is there more value in showing people the importance of making time for yourself, the importance of resting well, the importance of valuing the fun things in life and the good things in life, as opposed to work, 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 as Rihanna said. <laughs> oh, that, oh, that's good. Um, I'm going to take communion now. I'm going to invite Christian up, our vicar, to come and speak the communion kind of blessing over us. But I want you to think about your redemption story as we do this. So as we come back to God, we recognize that redemption isn't for the perfect people because there are no such thing. So it's okay that you mess up. It's okay that you still do things wrong and you're not perfect. Uh, I'm never perfect. My witness, my example is never going to be perfect. And if I thought it was, then I'd be doing it completely wrong. But I will commit to showing up for my mates. I will commit to fighting for them, to praying for them, to sticking by them for as long as it takes because that's what redemption needs for them. It needs your Boazes who are willing to sacrifice their status, sacrifice their personal finances in order to bring redemption to people. So let's take some time as we do communion to think about where we're going to partner with God in living redeemed. What has God redeemed in you that you can show to others? What is there in your life that you used to do that you now have redemption in that you can model to others? Or what does God need to do in your life? So what has he done, but what does he need to do in order that you may live redeemed? And the, step to, the first step towards owning redemption is our hardest step. Uh, I, li- I liken it to kind of when a baby takes its first steps. Uh, set, te- setting out, it's all wobbly. And when the baby steps, he, might, she, he or she might not take another step, might fall over straight away. But we cheer and we clap and we applaud the baby's first step. We video it, we Instagram it, we Facebook it, we tweet it, we send it around to our grandparents, we email it to people. Whatever we can do to boast about our baby taking that first step out, we're willing to do. And it's the same for us today of owning our redemption story. It's hard to take a first step. It's wobbly to take a first step. But that's more important than the destination we end up at. It's the obedience to God, the willingness to own our redemption, and the willingness to take those baby steps. God's not going to laugh at you when you fall flat on your face. He's going to say, get up again. Go again. I want to film you. Come on. How are you earning your redemption? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. He's not going to laugh at you. He's going to love you out of it. He's going to walk with you through it. And as a community today, we've got space for vulnerability and honesty as we do communion. We've got time to, to share with other people if we want to, to name our redemption areas if we want to, to, to pray with people, that's fine. And our communion is a reminder of what God's done for us and of who we are in spite of what we do. We take the eyes off ourselves and our situations and are, we're reminded of our identity in Christ, in Christ. We're reminded of our identity as redeemed people, as loved people, as saved people, all thanks to the free gift of God's salvation for us. 
So Christian's going to come up now, and he's going to read communion, read the blessing out for us, and then I'm going to instruct you about what we do next. Christian. Thanks, Adam. The, um, the calling that Adam's just described is too much for you to accomplish on your own. You need God. And having this simple act of receiving the bread and the wine as symbols of the life of Jesus is a very real thing by which we invite more of God into our lives. And we recommission ourselves to be available for the adventure of following Jesus. Who knows what he's got for you next? Uh, But the weight of today's word from Adam isn't just try harder. It's uh, work with Jesus. Have him more in your life. Remind yourself that that's the fuel and the energy uh, by which those words that he's spoken today can be made true. Let me remind you with some words from the Bible of what uh, this means. Uh, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks and broke it, he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let me pray for us all as we uh, uh, ask God to come and be more in our lives. Father God, thank you for your invitation. We respond. We pray that as we have this bread, drink the wine, you will be with us in a real and tangible way. May the bread and the wine be to us the life of Jesus, empowering us to know you and to discover you and to follow you today and every day that follows. Amen.